будем записывать. Мишель, is it okay if we record like until 8.57? Yes, because we have until 9 and then, and then there will be another guest. Sorry for my English, but I hope it understands. It's very understandable. Well, first of all, I'm a historian. My, my field is history of Russian-American relations. Certainly we live in one of the probably worst periods in Russian-American relations. It does not mean we do not need to study it. It's maybe more, even more, we need to, to, to study it more to, to understand how we get the, here and how in the future should get out of such a situation. Because history will not stop. It's not a typical You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Ivan Karila, welcome to the Slavic Connection, and I welcome you to the United States as well. I know that it has not been an easy trip to the U.S. for you and for many Russian citizens in general, unfortunately. But in conjunction with that, I wanted to ask you, because I know that you're working in the European University in Russia, which is at the forefront of liberal change or reform, or was for some time. It's one of the last three remaining universities in Russia. And I wanted to ask you, how are things going with the university, with your work, with the work of your colleagues? Thank you, first of all, for invitation for this talk. I cannot tell on behalf of the university, of course, I am here as a professor and not as a, some administrative staff, but I would say that the situation in Russia is pretty harsh, but it's more complex than it sometimes looks from afar. At the same time, we see very, I would say, negative turns in some state universities, and there are bad news from, you know, from Smolny that used to be the faculty of St. Petersburg State University. And on some other, from some other quarters, we'll still see the you know, pictures of survival and uh, even trying. And we at European University, which is a private educational institution, uh, we are still trying to survive. We do make plans. And so far, we are not, uh, at least we're not, you know, as an institution targeted by any, any measures. Certainly, we cannot exclude that it can happen. But I, I would say that this is personally my personal opinion that Uh, the whole situation in Russian society is so, you know, big and complex and so many different voices. They are suppressed, but they do exist. That uh, we are still far from the like, establishing of the uni uniform uh, system of, of, of thinking, of teaching. And it's maybe a wishful thinking. Of course, it can change overnight, but it can change overnight either way. <laughs> and I'm trying to be a historical optimist, as a friend of mine called. And we are, European University makes plans, we make plans. We just established program, no, not established, we refurbished a program for international students because certainly international students are now very reluctant to go to Russia. But there are still many people who want to study Russian history, politics, culture. And we, my university is strong in all of these parts. We have a I think uh, our professor are among the best in, in Russia on political science, art, history, sociology. We, are, we moved our program for international students to Yerevan. And that is a, I think it is a good opportunity for international students, for MA students who want to study Russia, because Yerevan is, well, compared to Russia, is a safe place and secure place, picturesque place, but people who will come will uh, combine this environment, you know, Caucasus environment, and immersion into like post-Soviet life with a teaching of uh, professors Europe of European University. We will travel there. So for those who are interested, I'm, I invite you to look at our website, eusp.org. 
Sorry for this advertisement, but this is yeah. I, I just wanted to to answer your question. We are surviving. We are making plans. We are trying to develop our future programs. It means that we are also, as an institution, <laughs> rather optimistic. We think that it's still possible to do things. If not in Russia, it's near Russia. It's nearby, like in Armenia. So that is the situation right now. Again, this is more complex. This is less less straightforward. Like we are not a society which is already built as a totalitarian or no way. That is why I'm still there. <laughs> it's one of the frequent questions because I still think that we will be able to, to, to teach and to survive and to do good things in Russia. Yes, I have to say on a personal note that before applying to graduate school, I looked at uh, European university programs as well. But because uh, there was some process for citizenship in the United States, I had to stay here instead of going to Russia. But it was certainly one of my options on top. I also wanted to ask about how is your research going in the connections that it's related to United States and history and right now there is not much there in terms of relations between Russia and the US and, and your research kind of shows that there are some parallels and connections but that's not perceived very well today in the current political climate. First of all, I'm a historian. My my field is the history of Russian-American relations. It makes me. It gives me some relief from uh, from the commenting on the on the current events, which is, of course, the journalists are approaching me, to asking to, to to explain what is going on right now. But uh, again, being a historian gives you a depth of looking at the current events from the point of view of like decades or even centuries of development. And certainly we live in one of the probably worst periods in Russian-American relations. That does not mean we do not need to study it. It's maybe more, even more, we need to, to, to study it more to, to understand how we get the, here and how in the future should get out of such a situation because the history will not stop. Yes, uh, you know, speaking about studying Russian-American relations and generally American studies in Russia, compared to Russian studies in the United States, there are, I would say, an opposite tendencies. I know that American colleagues usually get more interest or more funding of Russian studies in the moments of the periods of tensions when, you know, like it, 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 it go back to Cold War, to the, you know, enemy studies and uh, went through the, uh, well, till now, I, I guess, uh, I, I do remember people complained in the 90s that Russia is now a friendly country, nobody wants to fund Russian studies. And then it was a, you know, new turn and then new funding. In Russia, it's quite opposite. In Russia, the best periods to study the United States were the periods of better relations. You know, the main, even the main institutional uh, American studies, like Institute for USA Canada Studies of Russian Academy of Science, some regional centers of study of the United States were created either during the SO or during the DITAM in the late, late 60s, early, early 70s, or in the 90s, in the periods when the relations were relatively good. At the moment when, in the periods when the relations are tense, it's, you know, the context of studying the United States and Russia became you know, less uh, less positive, I would say. There are some pressure on, on those who study the United States. I have my explanation, maybe I'm wrong, but my explanation is that in Russia, studying uh, the United States, well, the state bureaucracy considered the study in the United States as a way to export, like, 
alien values or whatever, alien system. They they do see the study, all the humanitarian studies and social science studies as a, well, if not a propaganda, pure propaganda, but something which uh, can, you know, influence the way of thinking and that is why that is why it became you know more difficult but again when i say that there are more obstacles to studying uh, the united states in russia to institutionally at least we do still study i mean i do not have personal any personal you know pressure on me well i have not the pressure i have obstacles when i try to institutionalize to make some you know center it's very hard now to create a center for american studies we did create it back in the 90s such a center but not now but I, I do write and I do speak whatever I, I, I'm thinking about Russia, uh, America, Russian-American relations, and that is that is how, how it works. And we we have a colleague. I have a colleague here from Russian Institute for Russian State Institute, uh, University for the Humanities. And they have a, the whole department of American studies. We have, as far as I know, we have two departments of American studies in whole Russia. One is there and another one in the St. Petersburg State University. So they still have institutionalized American studies outside of Russian Academy of Science, and that is that is a good sign. I mean, that is something which uh, lets us hope that uh, we will again, again return to full-scale research. And transitioning to some of your academic works, I wanted to ask you, you call United States a significant other for Russian Federation. What do you mean by that? Because in English language, that means some kind of relationship. I usually use, well, if I use some somewhere significant, but well, constructivists more frequently use the constitutive other or, you know, the big other from, from the capital O. Well, this is a constructivist term, and it means that it's not the United States for the Russian Federation, but the, well, Americans for Russians. And, and by the way, vice versa. There were long periods of our history when Russia as a society, or in the political system as well, but it's more than just a, a specific state which existed in Russia. Russian Empire, Soviet Union, uh, Russian Federation. And that also played the role of the constitutive father for Americans. Not always, but for, for, for long periods. And uh, what does it mean? Well, it's getting back to constructivism. One of the like core questions for a constitutive constructivist approach is to look how people answer the question, what are we? And that is a different ways to, to explain what we are and how we are distinct or uh, different from, from, from any other people. There one way to, to respond to, to such a question is to say that we are you know, descendants of some heroic predecessors. We are, you know, we are grandsons of those who like, won a war or so, grandsons of those, granddaughters of those who perished during the huge tragedy like you know Holodomor and whatever. So this is one way to, 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 to link your current being with the history of your nation. Another one is to compare. We need to answer the question uh, what we are and say we are not them. We are not somebody. Usually, uh, it's very, very frequently it's used, you know, the neighbor countries, neighbor nations used as a point of comparison. You know, when I ask people in Canada, what does it mean to be Canadian? You know, the most frequent answer was we are not Americans. That is, you know, that is definitely for Canadians, Americans are a constitutive father as a nation trying to distinct, to, to, to differentiate them from, from Americans. But when we speak about Russia and the United States, they, you know, for the last maybe more than a century, it started even before the Cold War, Russia and the Russians and Americans used the other country as a constitutive father. They explained their own important features of the nation, of the, of the state, of course, as a, something opposite to what what the other country has. You know, when, I, when you see 
if you if you if you study like American discourse for, for again for the century for a century, generally just look at the newspapers, political speeches, you will see the reference for Russia uh, many times without actually you know when politicians uh, do not want to say something about about Russia, but wants to say something about domestic American affairs, but he still or she still uses Russia as a point of comparison. No, I I, I remember that here in Chicago it was like a headline. There are Russian politics in Chicago. I look up what is it inside. It's not about Russia. It's about that. It was a long time ago. The mayor of Chicago was too authoritarian. He does not consult the you know, uh, councillors. He does not want to hear anybody. So Russian politics meaning he's very authoritarian. Or during Trump, okay, it's more complex system. What is the Russian meddling or not? But, uh, well, it was some, some meddling. But uh, again, the, all the discussion that Trump was a Russian pawn and a Russian agent, it's actually the revival of this idea that Russia is significant as a Trump is for democratic part of America. Trump was un-American and Russia is something like a synonymous to un-American. They fit each other very well in American discourse. And in Russia, it's, it's like a mirror image, even more in Russia. Uh, when a Russian politician, when Putin or whatever, whoever wants to, to, to make a statement that Russia wants to do something, Russia is doing something, they almost every time the Russian politician will use America as an example. Now, Americans do it or Americans don't do it. And it is kind of an argument for whatever Russians want to do. And that is uh, also the long, like, centuries old uh, tradition of comparing themselves to Russia. But, uh, you know, in this use of each other as a constitutive other, it may take different uh, shapes. You can construct the other as a threat, as an enemy, but also you can construct the other as a model. And, you know, for in different ways, you know, model for political systems, like for Russian revolutionaries, or model for economic efficiency for Russian reformers and state reformers. They use it, you know, all, all, every time Russia had uh, experienced uh, reforms, well, during Khrushchev or during, I don't say, some Tsars, or during Gorbachev and, you know, even Medvedev, they turned to America as a model. We want uh, such an efficiency as the American economy has. So that is also a uh, way. And that is on the American side also, well, it was uh, less frequent moments, but there were like, you know, when Russia emancipated serfs in 1861, it was exactly the time when American Civil War started. And Abraham Lincoln used Russian example trying to convince his, you know, lieutenants that America needs to abolish slavery. And that was a similar, similar use of the other as an argument in domestic affairs. touched on the U.S. Civil War and kind of Russia's influence on that. Could you describe uh, Russia-U.S. relations before the Civil War and then during the Civil War itself? Well, that was a, probably the most friendly period in our relations and the relations between the United States and Russia. I would say that the improvement of Russian-American relations or intensification of, of contacts started with early 40s or maybe late 30s of the 19th century when Nicholas I, Russian emperor of that time, decided to, to make a, a breakthrough in the economy, in the te technological equipment of, um, of, of, of Russian Empire. And when he sent like, special engineers to Europe and to America to, to look at what, what, is, what is new in railroad, uh, steamship construction, they get back to him the idea that American model fit, fits the Russian needs the most. So Nicholas invited you know, dozens of American engineers. Of course, he paid him a lot. They made, made a fortune from, from Russian contracts. 
and they helped Russia to build the first big railroad between Moscow and St. Petersburg. They helped to build rolling stock for that uh, railroad, and then they brought a, a lot of other inventions to Russia. A little bit later, telegraphic line of Morse, of, uh, Samuel Morse, and that was all uh, started in the 40s. And then during Crimean War, 1854-56, Russia was fighting against a coalition of European countries and Turkey. But American public opinion was definitely on the Russian side, which was already, you know, Americans. Well, my, my guess is that American public likes the countries which are trying to emulate American example each time. Whenever. That is a, probably the major argument in favor of, of, of some country when Americans consider this country trying to, you know, to repeat, to, 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 to invite Americans to, to help them to change. So that, was, that happened with Russia in the 40s and the 50s. And during the Crimean War, Americans supported, well, not, of course, not militarily. Militarily, it was not, not yet a strong military country, but public opinion was on the Russian side. American surgeons traveled to Russia, and, you know, like, uh, again, dozens of American surgeons served in, in hospitals in Crimea and during the Crimean War in Russian hospitals. So that was some died from diseases. And then the civil war itself, civil war, when Russia was most definitely, well, among the European powers, Russia was most definitely on the American side, compared to Britain and Great Britain and uh, France, which tried to, to deal with Southerners, that tried to introduce mediation, which also means de facto recognition of the South. Russia was definitely on the northern side, on the Lincoln side, uh, and Russia even sent the squadrons fleet to New York Harbor. Well, for, for different reasons, not only to support support Lincoln, Russia had its own domestic problems now with it was Polish rebellion at that time and uh, Russia wanted its fleet outside of Baltic Sea. But it was combined. I mean, everybody at that time, including Lincoln, understood those reasons. But they used the presence of Russian fleet in New York Harbor as a, well, as a boost for morale of, of the Northern, you know, Russians on our side. And it did, it did work. So that was, it, it continued through the 60s and 70s. So I would say the 30 or 40 years between the late 30s until the assassination of Alexander II in 1881. That was a period of the best relations between Russia and the United States. Well, they also, um, some of the major political agenda uh, in two countries coincided, you know, abolition of slavery and emancipation of serfs happened very close to each other. So that was two countries look at each other as, a, well, not as a mirror, but as a, well, friendly country with a similar problems existing inside. What is interesting, that was no much criticism about the different political system. Well, Americans considered that, well, all Europe is more or less monarchical. It's not, well, Russia is probably more despotic than France, but still that was, it was Emperor Napoleon III in France and the Russian Emperor, why? So Americans did not pay so much attention to the political difference in the relations, but domestic agenda was similar and that helped to, to build friendly relations. And I think ever since, Russian-American relations were so close. Well, the, we had, a, of course, we had a period of Second World War, but that was a military alliance, it was less about the mutual, well, people knew about each other's societies less, probably, which is strange, but it was like a century later, but uh, less than it, they knew it. Educated society knew in the middle of the 19th century. But they were friendly again, yeah, that was, that was a shorter period.
Yes, I wanted to come back a little bit to purchasing of Alaska in 1867, and that happened just after the U.S. Civil War. And in light of Russia's current aggression and previous territorial expansion in Siberia, why didn't Russia stab U.S. in the back, stab the Union in the back in time when it was confronting the Confederacy? And it was tumultuous time, and it probably wouldn't have resources to defend Alaska in the frontier. Well, it's a okay. It's 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 more complex question, and and there are I know that there are people more knowledgeable about the sale of Alaska than here in the Asia. I've just seen yesterday Ilya Vinkovetsky who published a monograph on that. I did not publish a monograph on sale of Alaska, but of course I know something. But well, and there are two different questions about sale of Alaska and about the current <laughs> current war in Ukraine. Well, there were debate in Russia, of course, before the sale of Alaska, and the first talks about the possible sale of Alaska happened in, during the Crimean War. And that was a time when Russian uh, political and military and, you know, Navy authorities understood that it would be very hard to defend Alaska if you know, Britain would try to attack. That was too far, far away from, from, from Russia. And the Russian Navy was much you know, significantly less than the Royal, Na- Royal Navy, so they could not defend it. And that was the first time uh, the idea was uh, discussed. And in the 60s, they returned to the idea there were several reasons when this military was won. The second was financial. The Ministry of Finance of Russian Empire thought that Alaska was unprofitable. They spent more money there than got a profit. The Russian-American company argued against that point of view, but that was a big argument. And probably the, the most important factor was that Russia just acquired the Primorye. They got a treaty with China, you know, that is Argun Nerchinsk, Argun Treaty, Argun Beijing Treaty in, in 1858, 1860. And so they got a They immediately founded Vladivostok and they needed money resources to settle in that area. And so they started a competition for resources between Alaska and Primoria. And the governor of East Siberia. Uh, wanted more funding of Primoria. It was more defensible and it was not, not an overseas, <laughs> unlike Alaska. So that was a decision of that time. But, well, uh, trying to answer the second half of your question, uh, how to, to, to link it. Well, you know, that it's, well, it's a hard question to, to respond to of, of the current affairs. It's, well, I just felt very awful. Like, like most Russians, we feel awful uh, about, about the decision of, of, of Mr. Putin of the Russian state what is going on in Ukraine right now. But I will just, again, I'm a historian. I know that Russia had a long history. It was, it had a, a dark pages, it had bright pages. So I do hope it will return, the cycle will, will go out of, of, of these depths. And I cannot say, what, is, what I disagree with is quite popular opinion that Russia is never changing, that Russia is immutable and that you know, Russia of Ivan the Terrible or Stalin and Putin is the same Russia. It's not the same Russia we are developing. I cannot link the current like, annexations with the 18th century annexation of Crimea when by Catherine the Great. It's a different historical period. It's a very different different understanding of what is permissible and what, what permissible, what is not. And that is, I, I cannot just directly link those different decisions, I would say, political decisions. That is why I asked you this question, because uh, many people in the U.S. right now just draw a direct link, even from, I don't know, the Kievan, Knyazis, and, and their invasions to the current period, and, and make this ladder, basically, the historical ladder. And they compare Stalin with Putin, and, and vice versa. And I, I don't look at this as, as historical evidence. It's more just rhetoric. Thank you very much for explaining this. 
I also wanted to ask you about the persistent anti-Americanism that we see in, in Russia. That was not always the case, as you, know, you mentioned in World War II, there was a period of cooperation, but more as a military alliance, but also in World War I, when the U.S. joined the Entente uh, for a short period of time at the end, also during the Civil War, as you described. But there's a persistent trend where Russians don't perceive the United States as friendly nation. It's more of a competitor. It's more of rivalry at best or enemy at the worst. And why so much centering on the U.S. especially? And why there is no same level of Russophobia or hatred of Russia in the U.S., at least until February 24th invasion? I'll try to be short, but I, I have two different sides or different parts of the of the answer first one is uh, that i already already started to talk about uh, that russia had at least three different types of attitude to america that was a uh, russian revolutionaries or russian you know radicals always not always but most of the time looked at russia at the united states as a model it was uh, right for alexander radishev you know one of the first russian revolutionaries or Russian revolutionary thinkers in the 18th century. It was true for Decembrist, you know, this nobility uh, that started rebellion in 1825. It was true for you know, Soviet dissidents. So uh, that was one way of, of looking into United States. It was more, let's say, a view of friendly view or view of view on, on the United States as a, as a source of inspiration for political reform. As a response to this, there was a conservative state, a conservative bureaucracy of the state, which looked into America as a threat for most of the history, uh, not because America was a threat militarily. Well, it's, it's, it's happened during the Cold War, but before that, America was not, not a threat militarily, but it was a threat because it's inspired Russian revolutionaries. That America was a threat because the model was so attractive for Russian revolutionaries. So you know that Catherine the Great sent Radishev to exile exactly because he compared himself, it's a quotation from Catherine the Great, he compared himself to, to Franklin. And that was, you know, that was a threat. You know, that is famous uh, line from, from Catherine the Great. Radishev is a rebel uh, worse than Pugachev was. And the continuation of that phrase, he compared himself to Franklin and wants himself to, 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 to play the same role. So that is the beginning. And uh, each time the Russian government, different Tsarist government, Soviet government, you know, post-Soviet uh, authorities, uh, feel themselves vulnerable, feels a threat for their stability, for their power. They turn to be more anti-American. That is official position because they are feeling the threat from the influence of, of, of American values, American political uh, model, which, which became popular. But there are also the third variant of uh, which is uh, reformers, Russian reformers, when Russian government feels less vulnerable for political uh, overthrow and they want to catch up with economic and you know economic development of other countries, they turn to America as a model for modern economy, modern inventions. And that is the first part of the response. Another part of the response, this is a guess, like I would say wild guess, but my feeling that that uh, the bipolar system of international relations re, I would say, uh, re-establish itself. You know, it's, it's, it's something structural. It's something structural uh, because after the end of the Soviet Union, after the collapse of the Soviet system, there were different speculations. Do we live in a unipolar world or multipolar world? And at what we got by the, you know, the third decade of this century, we got back to more or less bipolar. Okay, we count China or Russia, but it's still some type of bipolarity. 
So I would, uh, even without communism, without ideological rivalry, still we have this bipolar vision. And my guess, again, this is not something I can prove with the hard data, but my vision of that is that this structure uh, reflects the democratization of foreign policy. I mean, the foreign policy is now in most of the countries linked somehow to domestic debate. You know, the domestic politics and foreign politics are now not divided. It used to be divided for centuries. Now it's a part, the foreign policy is a part of domestic debate. And when it's a part of the domestic debate, it turns to be, uh, well, it's easier to explain to, to, the, to the population, to electorate, uh, easier to explain the foreign policy in terms of black and white, or we and, and them, you know, good guys, bad guys. This is, you know, this is the essence of the popular mythology, and, and the foreign policy is a part of popular mythology. So this structure uh, reproduces itself. And of course, well, there are some anti-Americanism in Russia, but... Well, I would say there are also, uh, I, would, I, I do not, I hate the word Russophobia, uh, but there is a lot of feelings, not only just feelings like after the February 24, but some unjust uh, negative feelings to Russia in the United States. I would say there are also, it, it, is also, it does also exist at some parts of Russian, of American society. Not the same intensity, not the same, you know, not as wide because Americans do not usually think about foreign countries, but still it does exist and it is a part of the same interplay. Coming back to the history of U.S.-Russia relations, the rhetoric of many contemporary Russian statesmen is very much centered on the United States and the West and the United States at the forefront. Why there is so much obsession with the United States in particular? When did this begin? Is it competition? Because it, in some periods it was more kind competition as in Khrushchev, but right now it seems very unproductive, unlike in the 60s. Well, again, this is uh, the same, uh, the result of the same view of the United States as a uh, representation of everything non-Russian or anti-Russian. And it's also uh, links to the uh, like propaganda exporting the f domestic threat into, into, into the United States. You know, this linkage of the domestic opponents to the United States gets the authorities uh, the way to, to prosecute people. You know, all of the people, who, uh, all of those people who are against our power are not our domestic opponents, but they are pawns of the, of the enemy country. So they, to, to prove that they need two things, they need to link opposition to the United States, and also they need to demonize the United States, because if the America is friendly power, what's, what's bad in being connected? So you, you need to be connected with some real evil empire, you know, like mirror image. And that is, well, again, this works also on American side. Again, less, maybe in less intensity. But when I read this uh, debate about Trump, okay, sorry about that. I know most of, 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 my, of those of listeners are democratic here. But when I read the debate of the, like, 2017, uh, well, I, I could not stop myself thinking that uh, American democratic press plays the same game, the mirror game they used. You know, Trump is Russian pound, this is not American. This is well, this is easy, easy way to to demonize foreign power and to link domestic uh, opponents to you know to, to that demonized foreign uh, foreign power. And the, the way that America still use Russia is this demonic other means that uh, Russia was even you know before this this year this February was still a constitutive father for for American political discourse I would say
And do you think the People's Republic of China would potentially become that constitutive other? Certainly, this is yeah, this is potential for that. And uh, people, you know, like me, Shimer, did did write, did write it for for years. That okay, there is a real threat in China, not in Russia. Well, it's it's strange to repeat it this year, but. Well, we will understand that Chinese economy is much you know, bigger and we do not know, know the Chinese you know, plans for, for decades they are building. And of course, they have a potential. But if you look in the American discourse, it's still a long way to, to replace Russia with China. But partially because we had a so long time of Russian-American competition that American political language adopted so many comparison to, to Russia, it's hard to, to replace it with China. Even if you understand that China may be the, you know, more important as a competitor or maybe the future threat, still when you need, well, you need something to, for, for your language, for your speech, the Russia comes first because there is, a, you know, it's already a part of the political language of American politicians. Almost the same way that America is a part of political language of Russian politicians. It's, it's not it's not about Russian American relations per se. It's a domestic use of the other country. This is it's important to understand. It's not about the actually the diplomacy or even military standoff or military competition. It's about domestic policies and how you use uh, well the description of the other country as a way to to achieve your domestic political goals. But I just wanted to ask you because U.S. and China have been kind of distant in terms of geography for m most Russian people. Obviously, Russia is, is large and it borders China, but majority of Russian people still think it's very far away in geographic terms and the United States as well. And relations have been kind of not very active, to say the least, between Russia and U.S., between Russia and China. They develop slowly, but nevertheless, Russians look at U.S. more as relative country, as, as somebody that they can relate to or they can compete with or be friendly with. But China is still very much distant. Why do you think that is the case? Well, it's, it's relatively easy. Russia and the United States were developed as a, I would say, as a projection of the greater Europe. Both countries were the uh, offsprings of, of European I'd say, civilization, European political thought and political system. So that is why back in the 19th century, Americans could compare themselves to Russia. Russia, was, Russia could be uh, described this, with the same political language than uh, Americans described themselves. But within that political language, Russia was the direct opposite, something which you, you, well, uh, something you can uh, describe as an opposition to you. But uh, China was, was outside of that system. Back in the 19th century, no political theorist in, in, in the United States could describe a Chinese political system. It was just too exotic. It was outside of the same political domain. It's different civilization. Okay, certainly by now there are, you know, political sciences more developed and it, comparative political science describe all the any political system, including Chinese. But it's a tradition, it's a legacy. It's for a long time it developed. Uh, Russia and the United States developed within the same, well, I would say the same domain of political language and that's uh, that is why i think it's it's they still compare themselves to, to each other and not to china but it, it can be uh, changed of course but it, it needs time thank you very much dr Kurila, for taking the time to interview with us it was really fascinating thank you misha the slavic connection is part of the texas podcast network the conversations changing the world Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin.
For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces.